So today we're starting a new sermon series. It goes all the way to the end of the summer, at the end of August. And it's through one of my favorite books of the Bible, and that is the Gospel of Luke. Either the last couple weeks or maybe even today, you should have been offered a, a workbook devotional through the Gospel of Luke. The idea is, is that you work in that Monday through Friday, and then it prepares you for that Sunday's message. And I just would ask you to give that a shot if you've never tried it before. Uh, the, the power of those is not in the question like, oh, there's a question I never thought of. The power is they just provide structure and help to allow you to meet with God, to be exposed to the Bible on a consistent basis. So if you haven't tried it or if you tried it and stopped, I'd ask for you to dive in and at least give it a shot over this Advent season. Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and technically it is an anonymous gospel, meaning the book never actually says who the author is. But from the earliest days of the church, there has been overwhelming consensus that the author is Luke, who is a companion of the Apostle Paul, who is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He wrote two books of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. And they're both long books, which it means that Luke is the, the person who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. If you just measure by words, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament compared to 23% of the Apostle Paul. So the Bible is made up of individual books, 66 books. It was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And there's so much that we could say about the Bible. It is the place where God has revealed himself to us. So if you want to know what God is like, or if you want to know what you're like, you've got to turn to the Bible. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, you find that in the Bible. If you want to understand what's wrong with our world and how we as Christians can partner with God to repair it and bring it about justice in our world, well, you've got to look to the Bible it's in the Bible that we figure out how to live and where true happiness is found. It's in the Bible that we get answers to the ethical questions we have and where we learn how to be right with God, to experience joy and forgiveness and peace and hope. All that's found in the Bible. And so it makes sense that our spiritual enemy would want to keep us from the Bible. And one way our enemy does that is to undermine our trust in the Bible. Last week, I was teaching down in the third grade class, and I just started by asking the, the kids what, what they had for you know, Thanksgiving meal. And, you know, it was kind of the usual list of suspects, right? We had our turkey, and then we also had our ham. And there was one kid who said their family had tried duck, which I thought was interesting. I never had duck for Thanksgiving. But I, I, I do know that all the kids whose parents really loved them, what they had for Thanksgiving was beef tenderloin, right? <laughs> now... Which of those Thanksgiving meals is the best? Now, while you think about that, I want to ask you another quick question. How many lights are on the magic tree? How many lights are on the magic tree? I talked to somebody who would know the other day, and they said there's 11 miles of lights. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's a, it's a lot of lights. And, and while we're thinking about the magic tree, you know, I just want to encourage you to invite some friends out to the magic tree. Maybe it's your small group, or maybe it's somebody who doesn't go to church, and you don't know where they are spiritually, but it might be good for them to come and have a good experience out there, because we've found that people will come to the magic tree, and then maybe they'll come to Christmas Eve services, or when they're at a point in their life, when they're open, they'll come back to the crossing because of that first experience at the magic tree. So maybe God wants you to invite someone to go hang out there a little bit. Well, let's go back to the first question. 
which of those is the best Thanksgiving meal? And you probably go, well, it depends on your preference, right? Your taste, what you want. I like this, but somebody else likes that, and that's okay. All right, well, how many lights are on that magic tree? Well, tell you the truth, only God knows. But in theory, we could count them all, right? And then we could all make guesses, and some of our guesses would be closer than others. So which is the Bible like? Is the truth we find in the Bible more like the preference of what you want for Thanksgiving, or is the truth in the Bible more objective? Like, how many lights are on that magic tree? Like, none of us will probably get the right answer, but we can agree there's objective truth, and we're all pursuing the right answer. We're all pursuing truth. Which is the Bible more like? Objective truth or preference? Well, let's turn to the beginning of Luke and see if he can help us with that question. We'll just start in the first verse of the first chapter of Luke. He starts his gospel by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, when you read those opening verses of Luke, does it sound like he sees truth as kind of like, oh, it's your preference, what you want, what you like? Or does it seem like Luke thinks there's objective truth out there, like something that really happened, and he's trying the best he can to tell you the truth as accurately as possible? See, what Luke is doing before he dives into the Christmas story, before he tells you about Jesus' birth or any of that, he, he gives a defense of why you should believe his gospel. He tells you that this is reliable. And as we think of the Gospels and why they're reliable, it kind of gives us a sense the whole Bible is something that we can trust in. It's reliable. But there are a lot of people out there who say, no, you can't trust the Bible. You can't believe it. It's fiction. It's all made up. It's written by people who couldn't explain their world to try to make sense of it. Or it's written by people who needed some sort of comfort, some sort of uh, psychological crutch, you know? And so whether it's, 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 it's because they want a crutch or because they're just making it up on their own, it, it all comes back to the Bible is fiction. But when you read Luke, does that seem to make sense? I mean, let's just test it again with what we read in the first couple of verses. What Luke is saying is that many people had tried to tell the story of Jesus. They'd started to write some things down, and there were bits of the story that were circulating around, and he went and he read all that. And then in his research, he went and he talked to the eyewitnesses. And these are the people who walked with Jesus, who heard his teaching, who saw the, the miracles. Because Luke really wants to get this story right. See, that's what Luke does, is he does all this research, and then he tells us what happened. Now, why is getting it right, why are you getting these facts and the history right so important to Luke? Well, it's because Christianity is anchored in history. It's anchored in the events that happened. It doesn't make any sense to believe that salvation is through the death and resurrection of Jesus if those events didn't happen. Because the authority of the Bible is not found in the sincerity of our belief. The authority of the Bible is found in that it is true. See, let's say we had a couple of guys, and they were going to go ice skating uh, on a lake. So it's cold outside, and they, they think, let's go skate on this lake. They put on their skates. Now, one guy is really nervous, really nervous. 
he's not sure that it's going to hold him up. Last thing he wants to do is fall through the ice and it's cold. So he goes out there with great fear and trembling. But the ice holds him fine because the ice is very thick. So it holds him fine. Now, the other guy, let's pretend that, that he, he is very confident. Oh, it's been cold outside. There's going to be no problem. I'll be fine. But it turns out the ice is very thin. Well, he might have a lot of faith in that ice. But because the object of his faith is thin ice, he's going to fall through the ice. You see, the, the, what does it, it doesn't matter how, how much you believe as much as it matters what your faith is in, the object of your faith. Is that ice thick or is it thin? Is the Bible true or is it made up? See, the authority of the Bible is found in that it is true. But then that kind of puts a challenge before us, right? Because can we say that the Bible is historically reliable? There's a woman some of you might be familiar with. Her name's Anne Rice. She's a very popular novelist, and she grew up in the Catholic Church, but left her faith pretty young. She became an atheist. She married an atheist, but like I said, she writes all these really popular vampire novels, and later in life, she became a Christian. She was very public and open about her faith, but what was interesting is how she became a Christian, because what caused Anne Rice to become a Christian was reading what non-Christians had to say about Jesus. The more she read what the non-Christians had to say about Jesus and how they were trying to defend their faith, the more it led her to Jesus. Here's what she wrote at the back of one of her books. She said, Arguments about Jesus himself were full of conjecture. Again, remember, she's talking about the people who are against Christianity, writing why it's not true. And she said, All their arguments are just conjecture. Some books were no more than assumption piled upon assumption. Absurd conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. That whole picture, which had floated in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. She went and read the case that non-Christians had against Christianity and said, it doesn't make any sense, and it led her to faith in Jesus. And if you compare what she found in those resources, if you compare it to the Gospel of Luke, who does his research, who carefully investigates, who talks to the eyewitnesses, what's well, a big difference? So what's the big deal about the eyewitnesses? Well, see, here's the thing. Luke wrote his Gospel during the lifetime of the people who are, who are alive at the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, at the time they were supposed to have happened. That's a really big deal. Let, let me try to show you um, and, and explain a little more. So let's go to the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. This is the Apostle Paul talking about what happens after Jesus' resurrection. Okay? After that, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See, Paul says Jesus has appeared post-death, his post-resurrection appearances, he's appeared to people not over in a little corner, just to a few people, but to large groups of people, hundreds of people at the same time, most of whom are still alive. Yeah, sure, a few of them have died, but most of them are still alive. So the idea is that you can go and talk to them and ask them questions and say, did this really happen like they said it happened? When you read the Gospels, you, you see them mention the names of people that really aren't important in the story. Like, it mentions names that we don't need to know because the, the, the names don't advance the story at all. Uh, l again, let me show you, and then we'll talk about it. 
Here's something out of Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in, in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So this is talking about Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary, and he falls down, he can't do it anymore, and they recruit this Simon from Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus. Okay, all that makes sense, but why tell us that his kids were Alexander and Rufus? Well, Rufus is mentioned later in the New Testament in the book of Romans. And so the idea is, here are eyewitnesses. Here are people who saw this happen. And if you want to go talk to them about it, then you can. Because you see, you, you can't make up this stuff about Jesus. You can't just make up stuff about his crucifixion and his resurrection when people who are alive at that time are still alive when you're writing your gospel. If Jesus hadn't been crucified, if, if there hadn't been appearances, it, it claims of appearances, if everybody didn't know his tomb was empty, if, if Jesus hadn't claimed that he would die and rise from the dead, then when these gospels started circulating, because they're just public documents, when, when they start circulating, no one would have believed those stories. No one would have believed it. They would have been like, no, I was alive and it didn't happen. Like imagine if I said, hey, in 2013, so 10 years ago, 2013 on Christmas Day, there was this huge earthquake in Columbia. You go, no, no there wasn't. I was alive then. I know. We were eyewitnesses of what happened, and there wasn't an earthquake. So, so it is the same with the uh, events of Christianity. You can't just make it up, because a lot of us were alive then. We knew. Well, so here's the thing is the reason that, that, that Jesus told the story the way he did, that Luke told the story the way he did, is because that's what happened. It's history. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Now, an, another reason that people say they can't trust the Gospels and the whole Bible, but specifically the Gospels, is because they think that they were created. They were fabricated by the early church in order to maintain power. So this is kind of the Gospels as propaganda. And it was the story that was told by the Da Vinci Code. Remember the book and the movie a few years ago? And this theory, this idea has been around for centuries. Dan Brown just made a lot of money by putting it into a compelling story. But the idea is that the church leaders got together and they created the Gospels in order to maintain their power. But here's the thing. If you were a church leader fabricating the Gospels to keep you in power, wouldn't you have made the disciples a little sharper, like a little smarter, a little wiser, a little more together than the actual Gospels really present them? I mean, if you were trying to write the Gospels to, create, to keep your own power, you probably would have said, well, they were heroes. But it turns out in the Gospels, they act foolish. You would have said, no, they were very noble people. No, they turn out to to. to be kind of dunces a lot of time, very selfish. You would have said they were courageous, but it turns out that most of the time in the Gospels, they're actually presented as cowards. See, if you're trying to write the Gospels on, 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 on kind of out of propaganda for the benefit of the church, it turns out that what actually exists in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is really counterproductive to your aim because the disciples don't come across very well. Not at all. I mean, remember, Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter denies Jesus, and the rest of the disciples flee from Jesus whenever he's arrested. 
The disciples are slow to believe. They argue amongst themselves about which of them is the greatest. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. James and John are presented as being so petty that they want to destroy a whole Samaritan village just because they have a different set of beliefs. See, the Bibles, the Gospels just don't make sense as propaganda. And, and if you were a bunch of men trying to, to write the Gospels in a way that protected your power, would you possibly have had uh, women be the first ones to show up at the tomb and recognize that Jesus had been resurrected? I, I mean, the way the Gospels present the story, the guys are all hiding. They're scared to death. They're hiding in a room. And there's this courageous group of small group of women who go out to the tomb to bring spices to Jesus' body. They see the stone's been rolled away. The body's gone. And they see the resurrected Jesus. But guys would have never made the story up that way because women's testimony wasn't even allowed in court. And why would guys trying to protect their own power present all the male disciples as weak and pathetic and these women out there being the courageous ones? See, the reason that the, the Gospels present the story the way they do is because they're trying to present actual, real history. Some people are... Are, are bothered, and they say the Gospels aren't reliable. There's another kind of objection to believing the Gospels, and that is to say they're not moral. Like some people say, I can't trust the reliability, while others say, I can't trust the morality. And when people read back through the Gospels or they read the whole Bible, there's always this long list of things that they find objectionable, and that list changes from time to time. But when the Bible is out of step, with our culture, and I'd be the first to admit, the Bible is very much out of step with our current culture, with every culture, really. But when it's out of step with our culture, why would you think, hmm, I bet our culture's right and the Bible's wrong? Like, do you look around at our culture and go, man, we got it together? <laughs> do you look around at our culture and think, this is a wise culture? This culture really knows what we think we have hit the pinnacle of, of enlightenment. Or are you like me and you look around and you go, man, it seems like our values are messed up. It seems like our moral compass is completely out of whack. So are you sure you want to trust the cultural wisdom more than the Bible's wisdom? Tim Keller gives this kind of thought experiment. It's really super simple. He just says, look, if the Bible really is revelation from God, wouldn't you expect it to contradict every human culture? I mean, if the Bible uh, uh, it was a document that never contradicted you, never challenged cultural norms, wouldn't that lead you to think it's probably a human document and not a divine one? But it's the very fact that all people, atheists, people of other faiths, no faith, they come to the Bible and they go, look, there are beautiful parts in it, inspiring parts. But then there are parts that I find offensive and outrageous. Well, that's exactly what you would expect a divine document to do, to both encourage and to be uh, inspiring and beautiful, but also to be offensive. Because God's always going to be out of step with every cultural moment. But it just pushes us back to go, am I really sure that I want to trust the cultural wisdom of today? Because doesn't it just come and go? Like, it, doesn't it just kind of change from generation to generation? 
Back before the iPhone existed, there was the Blackberry. And some of you are old enough to remember the Blackberry. Some of you had one. They were so addicting that they had a nickname of the Crackberry because people were just consumed by them. Like It was mainly at that point business people, uh, and they would just be typing away on their, their Blackberry. It was all text-based. It was email and text and things like that. No, no pictures, no images at all. Uh, and, and then the iPhone came along. And when the iPhone came along, you had the camera and you had all these pictures and images and all this different stuff you could do with that. And the people at Blackberry had a decision to make. And I'm sure that at the time, their decision made sense to them. Turns out it was a bad one. They said, no, we're not going to use pictures and images. We're just going to stay with our strength, which is text-based communication. Well, in 2019, Blackberry started to go out of business. And by 2022, all Blackberries were absolutely worthless because the, the company didn't exist to support them anymore. So just think about it. This thing that everybody had to have, this thing that was the pinnacle of kind of achievement and success and communication and being in the know and being connected, this thing that was a big deal. People didn't know how they lived their life without it. It just was gone. Just gone. Wall Street Journal had an article about a guy who uh, has a lake home in New Jersey. And here's what he has on his wall. It's two blackberries in a picture frame, right, behind a glass case. And he said he just put it there kind of as a work of art so people could come by and go, oh, that's what a blackberry was. <laughs> but you probably see where that's going, don't you? Is it someday soon? I don't know when. That iPhone that you have in your pocket, that Google Android phone that you're so proud of, the one that has your alarm and your maps and all your social media apps and everything you need in life, it's right there in that one phone, and this is the pinnacle of achievement, the pinnacle of success. It too, it too will end up in a picture frame in somebody's lake home so they can tell their grandkids about what everybody had to have. Because the things that, that humans build, they come and they go. Human wisdom comes and goes. Human knowledge comes and goes. Human morality, it comes and goes, it changes. What, what was so obviously right 100 years ago, what everybody just knew to be true 100 years ago, is obviously wrong today. And what we say is obviously right today, well, 100 years from now, they'll look back on us and laugh at us and think, you are so outdated. You thought you knew so much. Because that's how human wisdom always is. So you have to ask yourself, do I want to build my life on human intuition? Do I want to build my life on what the culture says at a given moment? Do I want to build, build my life on what seems right to me? The kind of human wisdom that comes and goes? Or, or I can build it on the Bible, which Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. I can build my life on the word, the Bible, the Gospels, that God has revealed himself to us. I can build my life on that which is sure. I can build my life on that which endures, or, or I can build it on that which withers and falls. So Luke is telling us that the Bible is historically reliable. It's culturally trustworthy. But then he wants to get a little more personal and speak to you and me as individuals. So let's pick up back in Luke 1. We already read these verses earlier, but we'll go ahead and read them again. It says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Well, who's Theophilus? 
The word Theophilus just means loved by God. Theophilus is a historical person who had a pseudonym. Luke was using a pseudonym to protect his identity. But we know from the language that he was a person of status, a person of wealth. There's a decent chance that he was a Roman official. But Luke loved Theophilus, and he wanted Theophilus to follow Jesus just like he was. So he had done all this work to present this case to Theophilus so that he too could see the beauty and the grace and the love and the mercy found in the resurrected Jesus. Do you have a Theophilus? Like somebody you care about, somebody you're praying for, somebody you want to talk to about Jesus, somebody you want to bring to the magic tree or Christmas Eve services or, or, or anything, anything that you have a chance to do. Do you have a Theophilus, somebody that God has put on your heart that you would love to see come to faith in Jesus? You might ask God for one if you don't. Because Luke is going to speak to Theophilus' head and his heart. To our head and our heart. And to our head, he says, look, the Bible is historically reliable. You can trust it. And they trust it more than what the culture says. But then to your heart, to you, he says, you must surrender to it. That's just good to know these things. You have to surrender in your own life to it. That's what he wants the Theophilus to do. See, I use some images here to help us kind of picture what I think Luke is driving at, where he wants us to be as we start this series and as we start Advent. We can stand on the Bible. Like, the person standing on the Bible respects the Bible, a good chance, thinks there's some good stuff in there, but they are going to sit in judgment of the Bible. They're going to, like going through a cafeteria and picking the food you want, they're going to pick and choose what they want out of the Bible. The Bible has to make sense to them or they won't do it. They are sitting in authority over the Bible. Or you can reverse it, right? And you can let the Bible sit in authority over you. And you can say, I don't get some things, Jesus, and I know my life is out of alignment with the Bible, but I want to bring all that I am underneath his authority. Because when, when I differ from the Bible, the Bible's right and I'm wrong. And when my culture differs from the Bible, the Bible's right and, I'm, and my culture are wrong. Because I live under the authority of it. See, those are two different options that you have in life. And you've got to just say, who do you think you are and who do you want to be? Do you pick and choose? Like, do you know areas of your life right now that are out of line with the Bible? Money, time, jealousy, anger, lack of forgiveness, sexuality, whatever, right? Are you okay with that? Because that's a dangerous place to be. To be okay with our life being out of alignment with the Bible's authority. This is the place we want to be. We want to gather up all that we are. We want to bring it to Jesus saying, Jesus, we want you to be Lord of our life. We want to obey your word. We want to be the men and women that you want us to be. We know we're not there, but we surrender and submit to you. We pick up our Bible, we read it, and we meet Jesus there. And the more we see in him, the more we love him, and the more we want to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes so that through this series on Luke and every time we pick up the Bible, anytime we're in a small group, anytime we're reading on our own, that we would have eyes to see the beauty and the grace and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. And that our hearts would follow you. We would submit and surrender to you. We want you to be Lord of our life. Convict us, Jesus. Shine your light of truth into our hearts. Expose any area of our life that is out of alignment with your will. And give us the grace to submit and surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May God open your heart along with all the saints so that you may know how wide and high and long and deep is God's love for you in Jesus Christ, his son. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Have a great Sunday.